podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Thursday, January the 20th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. That's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN on Trustpilot, so you can trust them to keep your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL V sorry EPL599 to get yourself $5.99 off your first month. So first month for one quid, $6.99 thereafter. No contract, no long-term commitment. Easy to install, instant download to your device. Get using straight away with Liberty Shield. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company. Located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check at homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPIL Index and Anfield Index shops that you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off. Right, folks, two games in the Premier League last night. And let's start with one of the most mental ends to a game you're going to see all season Leicester 2, Tottenham 3. At the King Power, a game in which Tottenham absolutely demolished Leicester, but almost, almost failed to take advantage of. It was very similar to Leicester versus Liverpool a couple of weeks back. Leicester come into the game, obviously with some injuries. A back three of Chowdhury, Soyuncu and Vestergaard is not going to inspire confidence in anybody. Chowdhury is a midfielder. Soyuncu has gone from being one of the three or four best central defenders in the league two seasons ago to a complete liability. And Yannick Vestergaard, again, I don't swear often on this podcast, but sometimes swearing is justified, and this is where it's justified. The fact that Southampton managed to hoodwink Brendan Rodgers into buying shit centre-backs, not once, but twice, is a miraculous thing. An amazing thing. As if Lovren wasn't enough. As if the calamity that was the signing of Dejan Lovren from Southampton, when anybody who watched Southampton regularly could have told you that Jose Font was the better of the two centre-backs and still not good enough for Liverpool. That the reason Lovren looked good is because they had a good right back, a good left back, two very good holding midfielders. One of them at the time, Victor Wanyama, the best in the league. The other one, Morgan Schneiderlin. He Manchester United got hoodwinked into buying in, but he was a decent player. Lovren was babysat. And if you'd actually watched them play, you'd have noticed that in the first half of that season, he was pretty good. To his credit, he had four good months. And then he was awful. 
the second half of the season. Absolutely dreadful. If Rodgers had paid attention when Liverpool beat Southampton 3-1 down at St Mary's, he never would have bought Lovren because Lovren cost Southampton two of the three goals and wasn't exactly great on the third either. But that wasn't enough for Brendan. Back to the well he went with his bucket looking for something and out came Yannick Vestergaard as if Bednarak hadn't been holding his hand all of last season. And again, Vestergaard, good first half of the season. Then teams figured out, this guy can't move. And he was exploited time and time again through the second half of last season. Mediocrity would be a step up for Yannick Vestergaard. Good in the air, can ping a pass, a terrible defender. Yet, loved, yet Brendan Rodgers fell in love with him and brought him in. That was his back three. Mark Albrighton as a wing back, not really his position. But Luke Thomas at left wing back, quality young player. Madison Thielemans and Dewsbury Hall in midfield. All very progressive, attack-minded midfielders. No real defensive nouns there. Hamza Chowdhury would have been nice in midfield, but they need them at centre-back, allegedly. Though you'd have to ask, if you're that short of centre-backs, why did you terminate the contract of Filip Benkovic last week and allow him to leave for nothing? You'd really have to ask the question, and I hope Brendan's paymasters are asking that question. Up front, Pat Sandaka, Adam Ola-Luckman. Decent bench, James Justin back. He came on, it was great to see him back. He was developing into one of the best young fullbacks in the country. One of those rare fullbacks who can play both sides, right back and left back. He's comfortable in a back four or as a wing back in a back three setup. He can also play as a central defender in a back three. And I wouldn't bet against him being comfortable as a centre back in a back four. So great to have him back. Harvey Barnes, huge talent we know. Uh, Danny Ward is a good backup keeper. Ayosi Perez, they paid quite a bit of money for him. Um, Daly Campbell very highly regarded as is McAteer and Brunt and obviously Bubakar Samari on the bench there as well Tottenham lined up with Hugo Lloris in goal Tanganga Davinson Sanchez and Ben Davies is a back three again not really inspiring confidence but at least they're all centre backs um, Emerson Ollie Skip Harry Winks and Pierre-Emile Hoisberg across oh and, and Regulon across the midfield and then Lucas Moura up front with Kane. Uh, a bench of Doherty, Brian Hill, Joe Roden, Giovanni Lo Celso, Ryan Sessegnon, Deli Ali, Golini, Bergvine, and young Dane Scarlett. That's a strong bench, to be fair. Um, Spurs should have been 3-0 up and out of sight by 20 minutes. This game reminded me of the Liverpool game that Spurs played recently, in which... They should have destroyed Liverpool in that early spell. Didn't, and then got punished for it. Pats and Daka putting Leicester one up on 24 minutes after good work from Adamola Luckman. Scrappy defending by Spurs. I thought Lloris could have done a bit better. I don't think he made himself all that big. And Daka scored from a narrow angle. But Harry Kane made it 1-1 on 38 minutes. A very typically Harry Kane kind of goal. Uh, really well taken. Credit to him. He looked more like Harry Kane last night. Spurs continued to outplay Leicester. And then somehow Leicester caught them on the counter. 
and it's James Madison on 76 minutes putting the Foxes 2-1 up. And it looked like that's how it was going to stay until the 95th minute when Steven Bergvine took advantage of chaos in the Leicester defence. Sionchu all over the place. Great finish by Bergvine. 2-2. And you thought Spurs have rescued the point. They'll take the point. They'll move on. But no, Steven Bergvine on 97 with the winner. Really good goal. Great assist from Harry Kane. Beats the keeper. And the really clever finish. Sionchu is racing to get back on the line. He knows he's got the whole open goal, but he also knows Sayuncha is going to be moving across and could potentially get the block. So what does he do? He purposely puts it right in on the far post. Sayuncha goes past the ball. The ball drifts across into the back post and into the net. And Spurs take the win. 3-2. Huge, huge win. This feels like a momentum-building win for Tottenham. And they go fifth in the table. One point behind West Ham with three games in hand. And were they to win those three games in hand? In fact, they have four games in hand on Chelsea. And they're only eight points behind. If they can take nine points from those three games, so three wins and being able to lose one, they could catch Chelsea. Now, they play Chelsea this weekend. so. Obviously, that can change the dynamic there. But Spurs looking really good value for top four this year. Ahead of Arsenal, one point ahead of Arsenal, with the game in hand, and Arsenal still have to go to Tottenham. Cried off at the weekend, made up some injuries, were scared. Now, Tottenham have the advantage. They have the lead in the table. They've underperformed. We're told Arsenal are back, and yet Tottenham are ahead of them in the table. Tottenham are the team that look most likely to get top four. Tottenham have the game in hand. They've got the home fixture to come against Arsenal. I really do think it's Tottenham's to lose. When you look at the four clubs who look like they'll be in the mix for top four, West Ham, Tottenham, Arsenal, Manchester United. If you rank the managers, it's Conte, then a big old gap, then David Moyes, then a gap, and then it's probably Rangnick over Arteta, even with Rangnick not really having been a manager for a decade. He's still got a fair bit of track record than Arteta. So Arteta is the fourth best manager for my money. If we talk about the best players at the two at the four clubs. I believe the two best players of that group are Harry Kane and Youngman Son. I think Bruno is third, and then I think it's a discussion about who's fourth. But I think Kane and Son are the two best players between those four clubs. If we look at the other end of the pitch, if we look at the goalkeepers, you would say De Gea is first, but Lloris would be second. If we look at central defenders, a key position, United's best defender is Varane. He hasn't looked particularly good this season. Um, Arsenal's best defender is Gabriel, who I really like. I think he's excellent. I really like Tommy Asu. I really like Tierney, but I think Gabriel is their best defender. 
And West Ham's best defender is probably Kurt Zuma, who's out injured at the minute, but we'll be back soon. But Spurs' best defender is Christian Romero, who's barely played this season. And he is outstanding in the middle of a back three. And I've seen a lot of Spurs fans say, oh, well, we've got Romero, we've got Dyer, we need one more. No. To not use Romero in the middle of the back three is to waste Romero. You've bought the guy who was the best central defender in Serie A based on his performances in the middle of a back three. Use him in his best position and build around him. He is much better than Eric Dyer. He's barely played this season, like I said. So you're going to see more of him in the second half of the season. And I think we'll see him settle in and start to excel. He's only played seven games so far, only six starts, which means he's missed 13 potential starts. I th And their defensive record has been quite good. They've only conceded 22 goals. They've only conceded 22 goals. So you've got City, Liverpool, Chelsea, and Wolves, who've got a better defensive record. Brighton have the same. Spurs' issue has been they couldn't score enough goals. But you've got Kane back looking more like himself. You're going to get Hyungman Son back quite soon. And neither of them have played well this season. It's very hard to see anybody other than Spurs as the favourite to get that, that Champions League spot. Spurs' games in hand. Burnley away, they'll win that. Brighton away will be tough, but you'd expect them to win it. And Arsenal at home. So even if they draw with Arsenal, if they beat Burnley, they've got a four-point cushion on Arsenal. Now, coming up, they've got some difficult enough games. Obviously, Chelsea next. That'll be tough. Then it's Brighton in the Cup. That'll give them a good idea of where they stand against Brighton. Then Southampton at home. You'd expect them to win. Wolves at home. You'd expect them to win. City away will be tough. Very, very tough, obviously. Then Leeds away, and Leeds should have close to a full-strength squad by then. Then Everton at home, they may have sorted themselves out. Then it's a difficult uh, couple of games. They get United away and West Ham at home. Those ones seem like they could have a massive say in how the season ends. And their last three games are Liverpool away. I've skipped a few, obviously, but Liverpool away, Burnley at home, and Norwich away. If it comes down to that, those last two games, you'd have to fancy Spurs with those last two games to clinch fourth. But I think they'll have it clinched before that. I would back Conte. They're unbeaten in the league since he took over. We're now, what, nine games into, into the league under Conte. Three draws, six wins. That's good form. That's top four form. Yes, they've played more of those games at home than away. Yes, it's it hasn't exactly been the most difficult run, but they beat a good Crystal Palace team 3-0. They drew at Liverpool. They beat Watford away. They beat Leicester away. It, they look like a team that will get fourth. Leicester, I don't know what to make of. Now, obviously, they've got players to come back and, and all the rest, but they've conceded 36 goals this season. And only Leeds, Watford, Norwich and Newcastle have conceded more. Brentford have conceded the same amount. 
that's really poor from Leicester. Given they've poured quite a bit of money into that defence, that's really poor. But it's very Brendan Rodgers. He's not a good defensive manager. We've seen it time and again that defenders that work under him get worse as the years go by. They've scored 33 goals, which isn't bad. Isn't bad at all, but it's still not what that level of attacking talent should be providing. Eight defeats against only seven wins. Now, they do have some games in hand. So they could potentially still mount a challenge for the Europa League spots. They're 10 points behind Manchester United in seventh. That would be the Conference League spot. 10 points behind Arsenal in sixth. They've got two points, sorry, two games in hand on United, one in hand on Arsenal. So that's not bridging the gap there, but it could potentially, if they get everybody back, if they can go on a decent run, it could potentially still see them involved with something to play for at the end of the season. Their next run of games, they go to, oh sorry, they've got Brighton at home next. That's a tough one. They go to Forest, conquerors of Arsenal in the Cup, away to Liverpool, at home to West Ham. Then they play in the Europa Conference League against Randers. That's their their games they should win. They get uh, Leeds at home, Brentford at home. So the league schedule after the Liverpool game and the West Ham game, it it does give them games they, they can and should win. You know, they can win away to Wolves. They should win at home to Leicester. They should win at home to Brentford. They've also got Arsenal away. That'll be a big one. And I'll be interested to see if if they've turned it round by that point, what sort of performance they put up at the Emirates. Uh, their end of season, Watford away, Southampton at home. Again, if they're in the mix for Conference League, that should be six points. But we'll wait and see. It's not looking great for Brendan at the minute. I don't feel like he's doing a particularly good job there. Um, they've obviously had a number of games postponed. But, you know, he's not making the most of the talent that's there. I get that there's injuries, but, I mean, Benkovic is a decent centre-back. I'm sorry, he just is. I He played two games at Leicester in the three years or so that he's been there. Four years, maybe, that he's been there. Like, he hasn't been given an opportunity. I get that he's gone on loan. It hasn't always gone well, but that happens. Harry Kane had loans that didn't work out for him. You know, not every player is going to be Harry Kane, but give him an opportunity. See what you have. Don't cry off and pretend you don't have anything. There's no way Bankovic is worse than Vestergaard. He just couldn't be. And the fact that there was a club noted for being smart in the transfer market, Udinese, just waiting to pick him up on a free. Tells me there was probably interest in him. But Leicester won't be happy with 10th. They can't be happy with 10th. And I wonder, is the pressure starting to build on Brendan internally? Because they bottled top four in in 19-20. They bottled it again last season. They did win the FA Cup, but their European record under Rodgers has been a shambles. And I said pre-season that I felt like the window was closing, if not closed, to get into the top four. It has slammed shut now. They're definitely not getting it this season. They're 12 points behind West Ham. They do have three games in hand, but you wouldn't fancy them to win all three. Uh, they're 11 points behind Spurs in fifth, who've played all, who have played the same amount of games. So they're not going to get top four. Um, and with the backing they've given him, 
and how badly the season has gone and the fact that they do operate way over budget. Like their wage bill is well over their turnover. It's like 120% of their turnover. So they run at a, a quite a substantial loss. The owners are propping that up. I don't know they're going to be willing to continually back Brendan Rodgers in the way that they have. The model was sell a big player, reinvest. This summer, they didn't sell anybody. They just spent, and they spent substantially. Now, you'd look at Thielemans and you'd say he probably goes in the summer, but, I mean, you're not going to get the same value from after this season as you would have after last season. A year left on the contract, disappointing season as opposed to last season when he's one of the better midfielders in the league. You'll still get good, good money for him, but you're talking probably more in the 45 million range than potentially the 65 million range you might have got last summer. I think the owners will look at that and they'll say, what are we doing here? You know, and without Champions League football, potentially without any European football, is James Madison going to want to stay? He didn't want to stay last summer. Will Ndidi want to stay? You know he'll have options. Fafana will have options. Ricardo Pereira will have options. Harvey Barnes can't be happy to be sitting on the bench right now. And he'll have options. So we could see a lot of turnover at Leicester in terms of the playing staff and maybe the manager as well. The other game last night, Brentford won, Manchester United three. The prototypical game of two halves. Brentford destroyed United in the first half. Absolutely battered them. Should have been two or three goals up. David De Gea working miracles. Come out in the second half and United just looked like a different team. Now, the first goal I would put squarely on the goalkeeper. I think Lossell has to do so much better. Lossell making his Brentford debut behind a back three of Pinnock, Janssen and Beck Sorensen. I don't like when I see centre-backs move from left-side centre-back to right-side centre-back. Even when they're right-footed, it, it just doesn't sit with me. Uh, Roarslev, Janssen, Norgard, Janold and Canos across the midfield. Sergi Canos filling in at left wing-back because Rico Henry is out, uh, and Buomo and Ivan Tony up front. United lined up with De Gea, uh, Delo, Lindelof, Varane, Tellez, McFred in midfield, Elanga, Fernandez, and Greenwood behind Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, United were awful in the first half, genuinely terrible. But they kept at it, and they got the reward. They got their goal uh, through... Alanga on 55. Then Greenwood scored on 62. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo with a good layoff. Bruno Fernandes runs through, untouched, draws the keeper, squares it. It's, it's that FIFA goal that everybody hates when someone scores it against them. Uh, Greenwood taps into an empty net. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was taken off and had himself a big old tantrum. Had himself a big old temper tantrum because, you know, that's what 37-year-old men do. And uh, kind of spoiled, I think, the win for United because that drew too much attention. Marcus Rashford came off the bench and scored a very good third goal and another assist for Bruno Fernandes, um, who, you know, reports of his demise were, were greatly exaggerated. Is he having a great season? No. Is he having... A terrible season? Absolutely not. His production has been affected by Cristiano. I told everybody before the start of the season, 
that this would happen. But the man still has seven goals and 11 assists, uh, seven and five in the Premier League alone. Jared Bowen is being talked up as some sort of miracle worker. Bruno is putting up a better season than him. He's gotten more goals and assists in less minutes than him. And yet Bruno apparently has fallen off completely. And Jared Bowen is the best thing since sliced bread. It's weird the way these narratives work. Uh, Bruno has been badly affected by playing with Cristiano. It's just what happens when you play with Cristiano Ronaldo. It's just the effect that Cristiano has on teammates. Um, the temper tantrum was really bad for him. Um, he wasn't playing particularly well. He he didn't really deserve to be in the team. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I, I was talking to Carl Matchett about this earlier on. If you look at Cristiano, like, I mean, he's always been temperamental. He's always been prissy and he's always been all about him. But when you look at the clubs he's been at till now, he joined Manchester United. Ferguson was the manager. Keane was the captain. You're not stepping out of line in that dressing room. After Keane, and remember as well, he was a kid. He wasn't really in a position to, to do much. After Keane, Vidic arrives, powerful leader, dominant personality. Rooney starts to really become a forceful figure. You've also got gigs and skulls hanging around, and you know they're the type who'll moderate a dressing room quite well. So he doesn't really have any opportunity to step too far at the line at United. He goes to Real Madrid. Sergio Ramos is the alpha in the Real Madrid dressing room. You've also got Iker Casillas. You've got Xabi Alonso coming in. You've got Pepe there, another another big time leader. So again, there's players in place to keep him in line. Now, there were reports that he had some tantrums while he was there, but he also had strong managers. Mourinho was there for three years. Carlo Ancelotti was there. Carlo, while not necessarily a forceful personality, very good at massaging egos. Then comes Zidane. A wizard at managing at managing egos because he played with a lot of big egos. But you still had Ramos, you had Casemiro, you had Tony Cruz, you had big personalities who could keep him in line. Then he goes to Juventus. Now, admittedly, the managerial situation not as strong. But remember, Allegri the first year, strong personality. Sari, not the not the strongest personality, but having dealt with Kepa, probably knew I've got to keep an eye on this. And then Pirlo. And when did he step in a line? The third year. What else happened in the third line? Cialini was out a lot. Benucci was out a lot. Cialini and Benucci, two dominant personalities in that dressing room, able to keep him in line. He's never really struck too much in public. There's always been reports of, you know, Tantrums behind the scenes in dressing rooms. He stropped on the pitch when decisions didn't go his way, but never towards his manager. He never showed that level of disrespect publicly because your Keens, your Vidiches, your Rooneys, your Ramoses, your Casemiros, your Benucci's and your Chiellinis would have taken him to one side and given him a slap. And it's as simple as that. They would have taken. Chiellini would have put him in a room 
and said, we're not leaving this room until your attitude improves. And if it doesn't, I'm going to pummel you into the ground. Because that's how he deals with things. That fellow doesn't take a backward step. And Cristiano didn't want any part of him. So he goes to United. Choir boys everywhere. Ollie's in charge. He's a PE teacher. Ranyik comes in. He's a retired PE teacher. He's not really. But he's he's a caretaker manager. He's not got the power to say to Cristiano, either shape up or ship out. Because Cristiano just goes, hang on a second, buddy. You're gone in the summer. I'm still here. You can't do anything to me. There's no leaders in that team. Not one. Bruno's wearing the armband yesterday. Bruno's not a leader. Uh, Maguire's club captain. The guy's not a leader. He's not a big personality. He's not a forceful personality. There's nobody at that club that can keep him in line. Maybe Varane a little bit, purely based on the long-term relationship that those two have from their time together at Real. But Varane is quite a bit younger than Cristiano and probably looks up to Cristiano, probably follows Cristiano more than tries to lead him. You watch Varane play, he's very much a follower on the pitch. He's not a leader by any stretch. So who is keeping Cristiano Ronaldo in line? De Gea is not particularly vocal. Luke Shaw's not that type. I mean, Scott McTominay might. He's got a bit of bark and a bit of bite about him, but does he... Does he want to stay? He's not even established as a, as a regular starter. He's not going to stand up to Cristiano. Bruno's not going to do it because the fallout would be epic back in Portugal. None of the kids are going to do it. So United are at the, the whim of Cristiano. If he want, like The interview he did recently was a disgrace. That was worse than... That interview was worse than the Lukaku interview. And yet Lukaku got fined two weeks' wages... And a big hullabaloo was made. Cristiano ripped into the young players at United. Nothing was said. Roy Keane was sacked for something similar. Ferguson sits up in the ivory tower. He's the one responsible for bringing Cristiano back. He's the one responsible for the mess that's been caused. No, nothing to do with me. Brings him back. Knows that one word from him will have Cristiano soiling his trousers and yet hands off. No, no, I'm not getting involved. I'm not the manager here. You've got to be kidding me. That took a big, big shine off what should have been a good win for United. Not a great performance, good second half, but it was a good win on the road at a place that's difficult to go to. Ivan Tony got a late consolation for uh, Brentford on 85. Brentford caused a bit of chaos in the United box and scored you would have thought they would have tried doing more of that, but they didn't. Um, United are seventh in the league. Level on points with Arsenal. But Arsenal have a game in hand. United have scored more goals, but conceded more goals. Um, like, let's be fair. The Ranić thing hasn't gone great yet. And United have West Ham at home on Saturday, which is a big, big game. A very difficult game. Then they get Borough in the Cup. Then it's away to Burnley, home to Southampton, away to Leeds, and home to Watford. That has to be four wins in a row. Has to be. If they want to stay in the mix for top four, that's got to be four wins in a row. They also get Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. And then their league 
schedule gets really difficult. They go City away, Tottenham at home, Liverpool away, Leicester at home, and you would expect that at that point Leicester will be better. They also finish the season with Arsenal away, Brentford at home, Brighton away, and Chelsea at home. That's a really difficult run-in. And if it comes down to it, you wouldn't fancy them based on their last four games there. Brentford home is the only one that you'd look at and say, that's a win. It's the only one. Other than that, I mean, Brighton's very tough to go to. Chelsea will probably depend on whether Chelsea are already secure in top four and whether they've got Champions League games, a Champions League final to potentially prepare for. But, you know, Arsenal will probably still be in the mix, at least for Europa League spot. So that's a very difficult run-in. United's chance of securing top four is basically an easy February because March is really, really tough. April, Everton away, we'll see. Norwich at home should be a win, but then it's those last four games. United have a very difficult run-in. West Ham, then four winnable games. Then three, I don't fancy them to, to win any. I think if they take one point from the three of them, I'll be surprised. Leicester, it depends on where Leicester are by then. But those last six games, Leicester, Everton, Norwich, you'd expect them to maybe win two of those. And then maybe be... Sorry, I was wrong. Their last game is actually away to Crystal Palace. That's my mistake. Their last game is away to Crystal Palace. Which is going to be tough. So, yeah, I, I don't like their chances of top four. That run-in is brutal. And that march is just horrible. City, Tottenham, Atletico Madrid in the second leg. And then Liverpool. That That's horrible. And then it's Leicester. And that's just not nice at all. Uh, for Brentford, look, they've been poor for a while now. They had a really good start and they've been found out. They've got too many championship caliber players. Similar things have happened to other clubs in the past. You have that good start, the... the Momentum of coming up, the confidence of coming up, that enthusiasm of the Premier League, especially for them, first time in the top flight in, in the new Premier League era. Teams have figured them out. Teams have figured them out. They've figured out where the weak points are. And those players that aren't good enough for the Premier League, they're making too many mistakes for the team to survive. Now, when I say survive, I mean game to game. They'll survive in the league. Barring a calamity where they lose every game from here on out, they should survive in the league, in large part because there are four terrible teams holding up the bottom of the league. But, you know, it, it doesn't take much to fall back into it. They're, they're nine points ahead of Watford, but Watford have three games in hand. Mm. Leeds have two games in hand, only a point back. Everton have three games in hand. They're three points back. You'll remember at the start of the season, I did predict Brentford to go down. I don't think they will. I think they'll be okay. But as you look at it, with, with the games played, 
Now, you you wouldn't put much trust in Leeds, Everton, Watford, Norwich and Newcastle to win the games. But still, I mean, Burnley have five games in hand on Brentford. Five. They're only 12 points behind them. And they're rooted to the foot of the table. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't put much faith in those teams to win enough games to cause Brentford trouble. They've got 23 points in 22 games. If they can pick up another... 15 points from the remaining 16 games, they'll be okay. But they've got to go in the summer and start to upgrade in in a number of areas. Um, If we look at Brentford then, they've got Wolves at home next. That'll be a tough one. Uh, Everton in the Cup. Then it's City away. That's tough. Palace at home. Then Arsenal away. Then it feels like a defining couple of weeks for a number of clubs, but you've got Brentford, Newcastle, Norwich, Brentford, and then Brentford, Burnley. They've got to win two of those three games. Win two of those three and you're going to be absolutely fine because you'll pick up enough points along the way to survive. But three straight defeats there, given what they have going into it, would would really make me concerned. Would really make me concerned. Um... Right, so that is those games. Uh, what have we got in terms of news? Uh, Ralph Ranick says Cristiano's reaction to being taken off is normal. Um, it's not. It, it just isn't. Uh, Manchester United have rejected a loan bid from Newcastle for Jesse Lingard. Jesse Lingard is out of contract in the summer. Why would United loan him out? They'll want to get a fee. But they don't want to sell to Newcastle, is, is the, the crux of it. Nobody does. Uh, brilliant article, actually, before I move on to more news. Brilliant article on the BBC website today, written by Emmanuel Rossu. I think it actually came up yesterday. The battle for Stoya Bucharest, an Eastern European giant at war with itself. So give that one a read. It's really, really fascinating. If you didn't know, Stoya Bucharest now have to legally go by the, the name FCSB. They're not allowed to call themselves Stoya Bucharest anymore uh, because of a legal case. I think it's something to do with the government. Give that piece a read. There's there's so much you can find on it. It's a really long form piece as well. Give that one a read. It gives you really good insight insight into it and what the future might hold for the club and the kind of little battle that's going on over you know the name. The history of the club, things like that. Really good piece. Do read that one. Um, Antonio Conte has come out and he's called Stephen Bergvine an important player with special types of characteristics. I said yesterday, I would much prefer to have him. I don't know if I said it here. I might have said it on Twitter. I'd rather have him than Adama Traore. For me, I'd rather have him than Adama Traore. I think he's... Two years younger, and I think he's a better player. Uh, Arsenal have loaned Pablo Mari to Juventus. Oh, sorry, to Udinese, rather. While also crying about not having enough players. They've also released Saeed Klasnik and cried about having not enough players. So that's interesting. Uh, Usman Dembele has been told he must leave this month by Barcelona. So he's out of contract in the summer. I don't really see that anyone would be willing to spend money on him. I really don't. On other than Newcastle, other than Newcastle, who might look at it as the only time they could possibly get him, but he's going to want 
insane money and he ain't keeping you up. That's just not going to happen. That's not the type of player he is. Um, right, that'll do. We'll take our break. And when we come back, we will go through some listeners' questions. So I'll see you in a minute. Right, welcome back. We have breaking news coming out of Everton. They are interviewing or have interviewed Fabio Cannavaro for the vacant manager's job, according to Jason Burt in The Telegraph. Uh, Fabio Cannavaro is obviously one of the greatest central defenders of all time, an, an incredible player, um, one of the few defenders to ever win the Ballon d'Or. He has exclusively managed in Asia. He managed Guangzhou Evergrande for one season, 22 games, won 11 of them for a 50% win rate. He went to Al Nazir in Saudi Arabia, managed them for 16 games, won six of them for 37.5 win percentage, left in February, so I don't know if he was fired or what happened there. Then he joined Tinjan Guanjin, also in China, 55 games in charge, won 33 of them for a 60% win rate. They they were a second division Chinese team, and he won the league with them and brought them up. I don't know how it went from there. I I, I don't really care either. Um, then he managed Guangzhou Evergrande. Oh, he seems to have left. He left Tinjan for Guangzhou. Uh, he managed them for 132 games, won 79 of them for a 59.85 win percentage. So 225 club matches managed, a 56% win rate. He also managed the Chinese national team for two games, uh, lost both of them, but you, know, you can't really blame him for that. So in China, he's done pretty well. He's won one League One, which is their championship, and he's won one Super League, which is their Premier League. He also won an FA Cup with Guangzhou Evergrande. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Guangzhou Evergrande are one of the teams that spent a lot of money over the years. So I want to have a look at some of the squads he had there to see what was what was happening with his squads. Let's have a look. Uh, Alan Carvalho, Paulinho, you remember him, played for Spurs. Uh, Anderson Tal Taliska, he was linked with Liverpool forever. Um, so yeah, some some big money players there. Um, yeah, Guangzhou Evergrande, if I remember correctly, are one of the the Chinese clubs that really did go buck wild and spend a whole bunch of money over the years. Now they've changed things. It's an entirely Chinese squad now. I think they've pulled back on a lot of the spending. All the clubs have. Um, they have won. Eight league titles in the last 11 years. So I'm not sure Cannavaro winning one is all that impressive. They won in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Then he took over. They didn't win. Then they did win. And then they didn't win the last couple of years he was there. They finished runners-up twice under him. So considering they'd won six in a row before him, I'm not sure him winning one of four is all that impressive. Uh, he did win 
one of their only two Chinese FA Cups, so that's not bad. They've also won two Asian Champions Leagues, but they were before him. Um, so yeah, like they are a bit of a of a superpower in Chinese football, and I think it's fair to say they will look at his time, one title, runners up twice, and third once as a failure, given the uh, seven straight titles before him. Actually, sorry, yeah, sorry, six straight titles. And the year before that, they won the Division One title. So they, they got relegated, won the second division, came up and won six straight titles, which will tell you how much, what, what kind of money they were spending. Um, yeah, they've had, they've had quite a few big money signs there. Lucas Barrios was there. Everyone remembers him from when he played for uh, Jurgen Klopp at Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Alberto Gilardino, former Italian international. Alessandro Diamanti, former Italian international. Yeah, they've, they've spent quite a bit of money. It looks like Jackson Martinez was there for three years. Remember him? He was the hot prospect when he was at Porto. Went to Atletico Madrid, flopped. Somehow got sold on to Guangzhou in a deal that meant Atletico didn't really lose any money, which was uh, which was really strange. Actually, they made money, which is even worse. They made seven million of a profit on a player that flopped. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that that's impressive. He hasn't managed in Europe. He hasn't managed in a, in a, a high quality league. No disrespect to the Chinese league, but it's not it's not of the same caliber. Um, it's a little like the Scottish League, but probably overall a worse calibre of, of player. Um, so I don't think we can take much out of that. That would be a very strange appointment. Uh, it looks like Everton are literally just hoping for the best, trying desperately to find anyone to take over. Anyone will do. It's a little bit like Newcastle's approach in the transfer market, which I do wonder if Newcastle are being frozen out. If we're seeing... Teams just say, we're not selling to them. There's been rumours that there is a sort of nudge-nudge-wink-wink agreement between the Premier League clubs not to sell to them. The only player they've bought from the Premier League so far was Chris Wood, who was a buyout clause. The only other player they've bought was Kieran Tierney, who were Atletico were happy to to see go. So I do wonder if maybe there's a bit of a a freeze-out going on here. Um, I've wondered with Manchester City in recent years if there's also a bit of a freeze-out going. When you see who they've bought, it's largely been buyout clauses for the last couple of years and younger players from around the, you know, around the world. Not many Premier League deals for City and not many deals that aren't you know, 50, 60 million. Um, the ones that they have had have been largely buyout clauses. Nathan Aki was a buyout clause. I think Riyad Mahrez was a buyout clause. Um Rodri was a buyout clause. I think Ruben Diaz was as well. Obviously, Jack Grealish was a buyout clause. So I, I do wonder if we're seeing that happen with City. And I, I've wondered for a while if we might see this with all three of the you know the state-owned clubs, PSG, Newcastle, and Man City, that clubs will just say, we're not selling to you. We're just not going to sell to you. And we're going to make you pariahs. I, I wonder if that's what's happening with Newcastle. Um, if if they can't get players in, they're going to go down. If they go down, I, I wonder if teams will relax a little bit 
and be happier to take their money because really good players aren't going to go to the championship. But, you know, like a Nat Phillips would probably join Newcastle in the championship, earn Premier League money, and Liverpool would probably be quite happy to take 15 to 18 million from Newcastle for Nat Phillips. But they're not going to be able to go and buy, let's say, Sven Botman in the championship because he's not going to go play in the championship, regardless of what wages they're offering. Uh, it is questions day, so let's get to that. Uh, we have some, we have quite a few here, actually. Um, Falk1977, question for the pod with a precursor. Noam Chomsky, no, Noam Chomsky said that every sentence is unique in human history. Like, I watched Adama Traore convert on a breakaway. Um, now that Wolverhampton Wanderers have increased their season scoring total by 20% in one game when they scored three goals against Southampton, how safe do you think is Burnley's record of fewest goals scored by a top-half Premier League team? Oh, um... What have they got? 20? Is it 20 goals they've scored? Yeah, 20 goals they've scored this season. Let's have a quick look. Premier League table. Wolves. So, 17 goals this season in 20 games. Oh, wow. Um, I think Burnley's record is going to get broken. I, I do. I think it's going to get broken. Now, they've got a tough run coming up. They go to Brentford at the weekend. They could score a couple of goals there. Then it's Arsenal at home, Tottenham at home, Leicester away, West Ham at home, Palace at home. Sorry, West Ham, yeah, West Ham away, Palace at home. That's a tough run in terms of seeing them score a lot of goals. There's games there they can win, but the games you kind of think they might win 1-0. Like Leicester. 1-0. Palace, 1-0. West Ham away will be very tough. Spurs away will be very tough. The games you could see them kind of losing 2-1. Arsenal at home, reeks of a 1-1 draw. I think that record is going to get broken this season. Now, there's a second part to this. Uh, There's one match. They've got one game left against both. Norwich and Newcastle can Watford score two or more goals in any of their other games um, you never know with Everton Leicester are bad enough defensively that it could happen they play Burnley but obviously Burnley are good defensively Brighton are good defensively Chelsea are good defensively Liverpool are good defensively outside of Norwich and Newcastle and the Newcastle game is away as well. Leeds, Leicester, Brentford, and Everton are possibilities. But let's say they get, let's just say they get two against Brentford, two against Leicester, two against Everton, two against Wolves, two against Newcastle, and two against um, against Norwich. What's that? That's seven games. It's 14 goals. They'd still need. They'd still need to score five just to tie the record. I, I don't I don't think they I, I think they're gonna end up 
with the least goals scored by a Premier League team. And the difference between them and Burnley is obviously they play quite attacking football. Like they do attack very, very well. They play three attackers every game. They they have a Dama coming off the bench. They've got they've got Neto coming back, which could give them a goal scoring boost. But like they're not a boring team. They're not a defensive minded team. They're they're brilliantly set up defensively. They, they are an attack minded team. They created. Remember at the start of the season, they were having like fifteen shots a game. Um, I think that record is in big trouble this year. I think it's in big trouble. Uh, Mike Wynn. Thoughts on Marco Silva and Fulham looking very likely to come back up to the Premier League. Will they be good enough to compete in comparison to when Silva was at Everton and when Fulham were in the Premier League last year? I think Silva is a pretty good manager. When he went to Hull, I thought he did very, very well. Obviously, couldn't keep up, but they, they waited too long to make the change there. He went to Watford. It started brilliantly. And then Everton batted their eyelids and his head got turned and the Watford thing fell apart and I think by the time he joined Everton because of the big build up to it because there'd been the fine and the punishment and all that kind of stuff that Everton had to go through and the compensation to Watford I think there was so much expectation on him that I don't think he dealt with it very well and obviously Everton have been chaotic for years now. Everton also spent a lot of money badly. I think there might have been a little bit of a disjointed approach in what he wanted and what Marcel Brands wanted. Fulham last year should have stayed up. They had a good enough team to stay up. Parker waited too long to make the changes necessary. But it's not just his fault. He, he was dealt a pretty bad hand by the way they did so much of their business quite late in the window. If they come up, which they do look likely to do, um, they've been in outstanding form of recent. Like, the last couple of games, they've just been tearing teams apart. Uh, They put six past Birmingham, six past Bristol, seven past Reading. They beat uh, Bristol in the Cup as well. But like 19 goals in three games. I read somewhere that West Brom have only scored 19 goals or something in their last 20 games. And West Brom are like fifth in the division. So, you know, they've got 70 goals this season. If you take out Bournemouth and Blackburn, you can add up pretty much any two teams in the division. and their combined goal tallies aren't the same. Actually, take out Bournemouth, Blackburn, QPR, and Luton. So four teams. Take them out. That leaves 19 other teams in that division. You can add up any two of their goal tallies, and they will still not be as many as Fulham have got this year. And they've done it while also being good defensively. They've got the joint second best defense in the league. West Brom have the best. Them and Bournemouth have the second best. And Bournemouth are currently in second. But I do like Black. I, I do like the look of Blackburn. Now, Blackburn have played a game more than Bournemouth, but they're level on points. It does seem to be one of Bournemouth or Blackburn right now. But in that division, anything can happen. Anything can happen. You could get... Borough could go on a run of... You know, they've already won the last four in a row. They could put together another four or five game win streak. They could catapult themselves in. 
QPR win three in a row. They're back up right into fourth. West Brom have been struggling, but you wouldn't put it past them with Daryl Dyke in the building now to put together a run of wins with that great defence behind them. All they really need is goals. If they can start scoring more goals, you wouldn't put it against West Brom to make up that seven-point gap. And you wouldn't put it past Burnley, who've lost three of five, to lose a couple more and fall back down. Uh, sorry, Bournemouth, rather. Um, but Fulham, Fulham look comfortable. I mean, five points clear at the top. Comfortably the best goal difference. Plus 47. The next best is Bournemouth on plus 20. And again, you can add up any two clubs in the division. In fact, you can add up any three clubs in the division and their goal difference will be worse than Fulham's. They do just look a class above this season. It has to be said, they do look a class above. If they come up, they have got to do business early. They can't wait until late in the season. That will just completely hamstring the season for them. They've played Roddick and uh, Gassaniga as the goalkeepers this season. I don't know that either of them are Premier League starters, so they may need to look there. Kenny Tete is a good right back. Uh, he's shown he can play in the Premier League, as has Tosin. I can't pronounce his surname, as has Anthony Robinson. So they've got three defenders that could come up and be part of a Premier League defence. But Tim Ream, Dennis Adoy, Joe Bryan, Michael Hector, these guys we know are not Premier League calibre. So they've got to avoid having to play them too much. They have to get at least one defender in the building early in the summer, early in the summer. And they've got to probably find a, at least one good backup fullback who can cover both sides. Uh, in midfield, a lot of good options there. John Michel Seri playing very, very well. Harrison Reed playing very well. Tom Kearney's playing well. We know he's not quite good enough in the Premier League. Um, Josh Onham has had a decent enough year so far. More of a squad player, but he's got talent. Fabio Cavallo has been one of the stars of the season for them. Seven goals and only 13 championship starts. But he's had a contract in the summer. Rumours are he could be on his way to Liverpool. Um, Cabano, Wilson and Mitrovic are interesting players. All far too good for the championship. Remains to be seen if they're good enough for the Premier League. Mitrovic and Wilson carry a lot of the load for them. I think Wilson is good enough in in a certain role for the Premier League. Mitrovic is just such a weird player. He's got 27 goals in 25 games in the championship. The last time he was in the championship, he scored 26 in 40. But in the Premier League, he got three in 27 last year and was a massive contributing factor to them going down. Just his failure to score goals. So they ended up going down by you know a clear margin. They were 11 points behind Burnley. But they drew 13 games. And you just wonder if they could have turned four or five of them into wins. Would that have kept them up? They only scored 27 goals. That was their biggest issue. Defensively, they were quite good. Yeah, they conceded 53 goals, but at the bottom of the table, it's not bad. When you consider West Brom conceded 76 and Sheffield United 63, Burnley stayed up. Burnley noted as a defensive-minded team, 55 goals. If they could have scored more goals, they would have had a real chance. But what they can't do is what they did the last time, which is wait really late. Like, 
I know the transfer window ran later last season, obviously because of the the COVID situation. But you know, you're talking in the last week they bring in Luckman, Anderson, Loftus Cheek, and Tosin, all in the last week of the window. Those should have been in the door ages before that, ages before that. I'm sure what they'll do is they look to buy some, they look to loan some. You know, if they can find another Tosin, if they can find another Anthony Robinson, that would be massive for them. If they can attract good players on loan, like they brought in Lamina, he was good for them. Ariola, he was good for them. Aina was good for them. Luckman was good for them. Anderson was good for them. Loftus Cheek is the only one that wasn't particularly good. And Josh Madger was brought in in the January transfer window, and it didn't really work for him. But he is a good player. Maybe he's someone they could go back to if they want more depth up front. But they've got to be more proactive in the transfer market if they come up. But they have been excellent. And if they come up and are proactive, they got owners with very deep pockets. I think they could stay up. I do. I think they could stay up. But they, there's clear needs in that squad. Uh, Mr. Kevin Clark, what do you think of Hatete at Celtic? Uh, haven't watched him a bunch for Celtic yet. Because obviously he hasn't been at Celtic for very long. But early signs, very, very promising. Um, looked very good in his debut against Hibs. Was that the only game he's played? Maybe that's the only game he's played. But he's meant to be very talented. I don't watch Japanese football. Uh, it's it's out of, my, uh, out of my remit. Since I started doing this and I watched so much Premier League, I, I've cut back massively on on everything else, and I, I only watch really big games, or you know, if, if Genoa are playing or if Werder Bremen are playing, I'll try and watch them. But um, I haven't seen a lot of him, but he's meant to be very, very versatile. Someone that I would trust who watches quite a lot of Asian football said to me, "He's a midfielder who's probably best as a fullback. Give him loads of the ball and time to operate." And he could be like a little bit of a Zhao Canseo type. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of him. But, you know, that was very promising. Um, they've certainly gone big on this Japanese revolution that they've got going on. Uh, Maeda brought in on loan. I think they, they're hoping that they'll be able to keep that one. I keep him permanently. Uh, Furuhashi obviously arrived in the summer. He's been he's been tremendous. Uh, Yoseki. Very highly regarded, um, and obviously Hatete on a permanent. I, I look, it's it's great to see them. The big thing for me is seeing Celtic be ambitious and seeing them backing a manager who I had doubts over. I have to admit, I had I had big doubts over this manager, but I'm loving what I'm seeing. I'm loving the style of play. I very much like the business that they're doing. They're, I can't think of the kid's name. The, the kid from MK Dons, meant to be very, very good. Looks like he's on his way up as well. So, it, you know, it, it's really refreshing to see a new approach, the manager being backed. I like most of the players he brought in in the summer. I think Starfelt looks decent. Abada looks decent. I'm not a big Joe Hart fan, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, I like the Greek Ford they brought in, uh, Giacomacus. You know, Jota brought in from Benfica, big talent. Carter Vickers has done pretty well. So yeah, I'm 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 pleased at what I'm seeing from Celtic this season. They were an abomination to watch under Lennon. 
the shine went off Rogers fairly quick. Even with the success he was having, the shine went off him fairly quick. And, you know, his personality would just send you to the wall. Like, But the second in the league, they haven't lost in a whole bunch of time. If Rangers can, you know, can slip up, maybe there's a chance. Was there four points in the league? Maybe. Maybe there's a chance. You know, they're scoring a lot. Defensively, they're solid. You're just relying on Rangers to slip up. That's what it comes down to. Those three early season defeats, they hit them hard, but they really have turned things around. And if Rangers slip up, I think they'll be there to, to capitalise. And that, that's kind of what you're you're hoping for. Um, moving on then. AMK2899. How likely is it that Paolo Maldini's son, Daniel, has a similar career to both Cesare Maldini and Paolo Maldini as far as legendary status go? Does he have the qualities to become a legend of any sort? Say Daniel doesn't reach that legendary status for Milan, but does manage to win multiple trophies. What would you say is the greatest relationship between a family and club? I think it is the Maldinis. I mean, this is three generations. This is three generations of Maldinis uh, at AC Milan. And, you know, Cesare, like you said, he was a legendary player. And he was, you know, someone that, from what 1974 sorry 1954 he joined Milan he played one year with Torino at the end of his career went back to Milan as a coach was there till 74 many you know had a couple of managerial jobs then Paolo comes along I think Paolo joined in like if I'm not mistaken I think he joined in 1980 joined the academy 1978 1978, he joined the academy, and he's been there since as a as a player for 25 years in the first team. 25 years. Think about this. He was a right-sided midfielder, right-footed, attack-minded, got thrown into a game at left-back when he was like 16. And that was it. That was basically the beginning of the greatest defender I've ever seen, I think the game has ever seen, he just got chucked in at left back, completely out of position on the wrong side, and very quickly went on to establish himself. In that second season, at 17 years of age, he's first choice. And he remained first choice until the 08-09 season. What a career. And now he's the director of football. And his sons have been in the academy for, well, since they were five or six. So since Cesare joined in 1954, there have been five seasons. One when he was playing for Torino. Two while he was managing Foggia. And one when he was managing Ternana. That there hasn't been a Maldini. At AC Milan. It, that's amazing to me. You're coming up on. What What are we now? That's 58 years. There's been, for 54 of the last 58 years. There's been a Maldini. On the books. Somewhere. At AC Milan. That's got to be it. Surely. Has to be. Um, as for the son. He's a talented player. There's no question about that. He is a talented player. I don't know that he's got 
the ability to be a legendary player. I think he can be a very good player for them, but probably more as a squad player type. Now, he is only 20, so I don't want to put any limits on him or caps on him. Maybe he does have a big kick on to come. Um, I think he turns out to be a good, if not a good, not great player. That, From what I've seen, I think he's a good, not great player. Um, can he have a legendary career at Milan? No, but that's not entirely on him because I don't know that Milan are going to be a massively dominant team over the next 10 to 12 years. I think they'll be a good team. I think they'll win some things. I don't think they'll have a period of domination barring a buyout that sees them, um, you know, exceed the other clubs. Uh, Christian Maldini, the older son of Paolo, who is a defender, he was in the Milan Academy from 04 to 16, didn't make the grade and now plays for Pro Sesta, who are in Serie C. Um, so a lower league career, left-footed defender, uh, plays centre-back and left-back. Yeah, he, he he didn't quite make the grade. But again, like you look at that, he spent 12 years at Milan. Uh, the, the son, Daniel, uh, Daniel, he's now 12 years at Milan as well since joining the academy. It was nine years of age. Now, he was probably there when he was like three. But, you know, you can't officially sign until a certain age. So... Yeah, I, I, I think the Maldinis at Milan is is probably it because Cesare was captain and he was an icon and, and Paolo was the icon for a lot of time. Um, sorry for asking a second question, but I just finished listening to today's pod, which you did the various 11s of 25 or less cap players. Would you say David Seaman is England's last great world-class keeper? Yeah, yeah. Um, England had a spell... Where they had, you know, they had Seaman, they had Tim Flowers, they had Nigel Martin, they had Ian Walker, very underrated goalkeeper for Spurs, and then Leicester, I think. Um, and and Seaman was world class. I would say Flowers and Martin at their very best were just a shade under world class, but could have become world class if they'd been able to establish themselves as international regulars, but couldn't with Seaman. David Seaman was a phenomenal goalkeeper, second only to Peter Schmeichel through that decade uh, in the Premier League. Um, since then, I mean, you know, David James, you know, Paul Robinson, uh, the current crop, there's, there's no standout there. I think they're all very much the same. I, I don't see... I don't see any world-class potential. Now, Joseph Bursick, the kid at Stoke, is meant to be excellent, but I, I, I don't watch Stoke. Um, I watch a little bit because I like Mike, I like, um, Michael O'Neill, but no, I'm not sitting down to watch a Stoke game. Um, I, I don't see anyone on the horizon. And when you look at, you know, pre-Seaman, you had... God, the guy's name, Peter Shilton, who was an incredible goalkeeper. You had Ray Clemens. Back further, at Gordon Banks. England have always had great goalkeepers until recently. But I've talked about this before with, with central midfielders as well. You know, England always had great central midfielders. It's They just churned them out. And at one point, they had too many to, to put in the national team. You know, you had Carrick, you had Gerrard, you had Lampard, you had Scholes, you had Hargreaves. Hargreaves wasn't great, but he was very good and could have been great if it wasn't for the knee injuries. But the others were great. Uh, and now, I mean, Jordan Henderson's probably the best 
English midfielder the last six, seven years. He's average. Now, you've got really good talents coming through now with, with Declan Rice. Jude Bellingham, obviously, is the, is the big the big one there. Carney Chukwameka, uh, young Ramsey at Villa. You've got Conor Gallagher. You've got Mason Mount, I think, is, is a midfielder in the long term as well. And there's, there's others as well you could go into, but... It's a weird thing. You do just get English football seem to just stop producing in key areas. Centre backs, another one. I mean, there's a bunch of good young centre backs, but I mean, who are the, who are the best English centre backs? Twenty-seven to thirty-one. Harry Maguire, good, not great. John Stones, good, not great. Tarkovsky, good, not great. Lewis Dunk, good, not great. Lachelles, yeah, was good, average now. They're just Michael Keane, meh. <laughs> you know, goalkeeper, centre-back, centre-midfield. England haven't produced those players. And the only, you know, there's a, a bunch of good centre-backs, but can you see any of them becoming, like, truly great centre-backs? Like, like, becoming a Saul Campbell? I, I don't I don't see one. I, I love Ezri Konza. Everybody knows I love Ezri Konza. I don't think he's a world-class centre-back in the making. I think he'd be very, very, very good centre-back, a level below world-class. I think Mark Gwehi's the same. Tamori's the same. I'm higher on Godfrey than a lot of people. Uh, I really like Max Kilman. Um, but I, I don't see a world-class centre-back, with the lone exception of potentially Levi Colwell. But it it's all depends on the next two, three years of his development. Like, that's... He's got to, Chelsea have to be either looking at a long-term loan for him. And I'm talking, you give him a seven-year contract and you plant him on loan somewhere for three years. And you let him develop in a settled circumstance, be it a Brighton, be it a Leicester, be it Palace, wherever it is. It's got to be a settled thing for him over the next few years because he, he is a really rare talent. But... Uh, you know, I don't know. And the goalkeepers, uh, I just don't see one. I, I like Freddie Woodman, but I don't think he's going to be a, an elite goalkeeper. I think he'd be a very good one. I like Henderson. I think he tops out as a very good keeper. Nick Pope has fallen off a cliff. Uh, Ramsdale, for me, is still too error-prone. People waffling about his season. Go and watch the Liverpool game from last week and watch the two big errors he makes. If it wasn't for Liverpool spurning big chances, Arsenal lose that game 2-0 and it's on him. That happens more often than people will admit this season. You know, Pickford, you can't be a top keeper when you've got little arms. You just can't. So, uh, yeah, I, I I, think Seaman's the last great one, and I don't see one on the horizon, personally. Now, others will watch more underage academy football. They will be more aware of who's out there, what's coming through. I haven't seen one at 23 or senior level. Um, okay. KOR99, what's your best 11 of players to have been managed by Pep, Mourinho, Conte and Klopp? Oh. Oh, I like this. Okay. Um, I'm definitely going to forget uh, at least a couple, so I, I apologize in advance. But we're going to start off by simply putting in place Xavi. Busquets 
and Iniesta in midfield because that is the best midfield. Virgil is going in as a centre-back because none of them have managed a better centre-back than Virgil. And I think... I think Benucci under Conte. No, Ricardo Carvalho. It's Ricardo Carvalho is the other one. Under Mourinho at Porto and and, uh, Chelsea and at Real Madrid. So, Ricardo Carvalho. Um, I'm going to cheat here a little bit, but it's my podcast and I'm going to allow it. Mourinho managed Zanetti. Now, he did not manage prime at his very best Zanetti. But he did manage Zanetti, and Zanetti's best is still the best of any right-back I've seen. So Zanetti is in at right-back. Uh, but obviously, mentioned for Trent, mentioned for Josh Kimmich, mentioned for Danny Alves. Left-back. Left-back is tough. I mean, Marcelo is worth consideration. Abidal was good but not great Andy Robertson obviously worth strong consideration I think it has to be Ashley Cole it has to be Ashley Cole doesn't it I can't think that any of them I mean for me Ashley Cole is probably a top at worst top five left back that I've ever seen Uh, yeah it's Ashley Cole it has to be Um, Messi is obviously one of the attackers there's no question there Hmm. I think Salah has to be. I think you go Messi is your false nine. Salah off the right. And off the left. Like I said, I'm definitely going to miss somebody. I'm already looking at a lot of those City players and thinking, yeah, there's a real shout for you. Mane, there's a shout for. Leroy Sane, there's a good shout for. I'm going to go Aryan Robin. I'm going to play him on the left like he did under Mourinho, and he was absolutely phenomenal. He just ruined the Premier League. Um, And then goalkeeper. It's Buffon. Buffon is, for me, the best keeper ever. Conte got him for his last great years. And if if I take the same approach I took with Zanetti and I just look at, you know, career overall, it, it is Gigi Buffon. So I've got Buffon in goal, uh, Zanetti, Carvalho, Virgil and Cole at the back, Xavi, Busquets and Iniesta in midfield, Salah, Messi and Aryan Robin up front. And my message to all rivals, all the best. All the best. Um, ITJ, what should Marcus Rashford do in the summer? Is it best for his career he leaves United and where would he be best suited to go? I think he should leave. I, I think there's real a real scope for him to leave because I think it's really difficult when you're a local player at a at your boyhood club and the club is struggling. And we, we saw it with Gerard. Now Rashford's not he's not Gerard. He's not Gerard as a player. But he's maybe becoming a bigger profile than Gerard was, certainly at that kind of age. 
because of his off-field work and, and what he's been able to do. So a lot of that a lot of that becomes a reason for people to to dislike Rashford, which is just bizarre. I don't know how, you know, feeding children can ever be something that people want to use against you, but it, it appears that some people do want to do that. I would suggest that Rashford should move on, and I would say the place for him to go is probably... I mean, I'd love to see him at somewhere like Sevilla, but they wouldn't have the money... Bayern don't have a need from. I think PSG would be a bad fit. I mean, the 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 issue is going to be the cost. United would want massive money for Marcus Rashford, and rightly so. I mean, he's what twenty four, and he's such a talent. He's such a good player. Um, I I would love to see him at a club like Sevilla, or a club like. I mean, Inter Milan could be an interesting one. AC Milan would be great. Go there and help re-establish them as a as you know a potential Serie A champion. But I do think he should probably look at running down that contract, or at least not extending it for a while anyway, and wait and see what happens at United. Uh, Chris Colby, lots of getting the band back together. Tweets from with with Phil joining uh, Aston Villa and rumours about Suarez. Considering only players who played with Gerrard. And are still active. Who would you like to see Villa join? From a Villa perspective, making them better. A Liverpool perspective, where you get to see a player back in the Premier League, or a neutral perspective. Um, <laughs> the thoughts of the fouls and penalties in a Skirtle Mings pairing is outstanding. Um, I mean, I mean, imagine a Lovren Mings pairing. Stevie's final year, and Brendan gives him Lovren. Uh, well, from a Liverpool perspective, I'd love to see them buy Jordan Henderson. Love to see it. From a Villa perspective, I mean, Raheem Sterling would be the obvious one, I think, to to look at. Raheem would be a massive signing for them. They just they couldn't they couldn't pull it off. Um. So you look at that Liverpool, the last kind of two years of of Liverpool under. With, with, sorry, with Gerrard, uh, 13, 14, 14, 15. Let's look at 14, 15 and see what we could potentially send their way. Uh, Brad Jones, I think he is playing in Australia now. Glenn Johnson is retired. Jose Enrique is retired. Colo Turi is retired. You, would, uh, you wouldn't want Lovren from any situation. <laughs> Uh, Ricky Lambert is retired. They've got Coutinho, Henderson. I mean, Sturridge will be fun if you're getting Coutinho and and Suarez. Go and get yourself Daniel Sturridge. Uh, Mamadou Sacco is a backup centre back, maybe. Um, Alberto Moreno, a bit of Albi as a backup to Lucatinha. Why not? Javi Manquillo, bit of depth at right back could be could be worth looking at. Uh, Adam Lalana is an empty shirt. Lucas Leiva was never any good. Simon Mignolet, ghost hands. Emery Chan would be a great one. Emery would be a great one to get a big upgrade in midfield for them. Uh, Joe Allen is 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 a, is a championship player now. And Sterling, the rest would be you know Ibe, Skirtle, ba- Balotelli, who Gerard didn't like, Rossiter, Sinclair, Lazar Markovic. Um, 
of of the of the fourteen fifteen team, I would say Sterling would be the dream one. Sturridge would be the sentimental one. Emery Chan would be the one that would improve the team the most. Well, Sterling would improve the team the most, but Emery Chan is the realistic one that would improve the team the most. Um, looking at the season before 13-14, Brad Jones, Glenn Johnson, Jose Enrique, uh, Danny Agger is now a manager in his own in his own right. Luis Alberto, he would be. I mean, the other thing is they've got Coutinho, they've got Buendia, they don't need him, but he would be tremendous for them. Uh, Suarez, Iago Aspas for the corners, um, Victor Moses. For whatever it is, Victor Moses offers. Where is he now? Spartak Moscow. Interesting. Um, I think Emre Chan. Now he, he didn't play with Sturt with with Suarez, obviously. But if you're looking at a former Liverpool player that did play, Emre Chan is realistic and would improve them hugely. So he's one I would look at. Um, Sterling would be the dream. Sturridge is the sentimental choice. And from a selfish point of view, for me, Jordan Henderson. Um, Isaac Gilding, do you have a single favourite match ever? It's funny how we all have a favourite team, nation, and players are players, but to pick a game or even a top five is incredibly difficult. That's a good one. I don't think that I do. I mean, there's games you'll always go back and rewatch, like the Liverpool four Newcastle three games. You'd you'd go back and watch them. You'd go back and watch the the Barcelona Manchester United Champions League finals just to see what demolition really looks like. Um, there's a couple of games against Real Madrid where Barca just spanked them that you would absolutely go back and watch. Um, that is a really good question. And I, I genuinely don't think I do. There was a United-Barcelona Champions League game that Figo played right wing and Rivaldo played left wing for Barca. And they just tortured United. Um, there was Real Madrid against United at Old Trafford. A lot of these are United games because they're champion. A lot of them are Champions League games, you know. Um I mean, I, I watched every single Barcelona Real Madrid game in for 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 or sorry every single Barcelona game for years, and there's probably eight or ten that stand out as just sensational performances. But they're by one team. You're looking at something that's both teams. I don't think that I do. My favorite game, if I was to. Pick one favourite game that I could only ever watch this game and no other. Uh, I would say the qualification for the 2002 World Cup, Ireland versus Netherlands at Lansdowne Road. Uh, I would say that's probably my favourite game to watch because of what it meant to us. 
But there's a couple of others I put in that bracket as well. Euro 88, Ireland versus England, Ray Houghton's header. Ireland versus the Soviet Union and, and Ronnie Whelan's goal. Um, you know, Alan McLaughlin's goal to qualify us for the 94 World Cup. Uh, Ireland versus Italy in the... Oh, actually, that, that might be it. Ireland versus Italy in the 1994 World Cup at Giant Stadium, New York. Ray Houghton scores an absolute worldie of a goal. And Paul McGrath puts in maybe the single best central defensive performance I've ever seen. He was just sensational. Completely and utterly pocketed the Italian attack. That may be it. Group E, opening game. Ireland won, Italy nil. The Irish team, Packy Bonner, Dennis Irwin, Paul McGrath, Phil Babb, Terry Phelan, Ray Houghton, Roy Keane, unbelievable in midfield that day, John Sheridan, Andy Townsend, Steve Staunton, and Tommy Coyne up front, McAteer and Aldridge on off the bench. The Milan, the, the Italian team, listen to this. Paluca in goal, at the time the world's most expensive keeper. Tassotti, Costa Curta, Baresi, Maldini. The greatest defence the world has ever seen. Midfield doesn't quite live up to the billing. Donadoni was great. Albertini was great. Dino Baggio was very good, but not great. And Ivani was uh, just okay. But Baggio and Pepe Signore up front. I mean, that is an unbelievable team. Ireland went out. Dennis Irwin was incredible. One of the best fullbacks ever. McGrath's one of the best centre-backs ever. Phil Babb was bang average. Terry Phelan was bang average. Ray Houghton was very good. Roy Keane is one of the best midfielders of all time. John Sheridan was talented, but he wasn't a great player. He could have been, but it just never really clicked for him. Andy Townsend was good for us. He was, he was a fairly average player. Steve Staunton was a better left-back than he was left midfielder. And Tommy Coyne. Tommy Coyne, up front. The highlight of his career was playing for Motherwell. That man went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Baresi. That's probably it. That's probably it, to be honest. Um, though, that 2002 World Cup qualifier uh, run, in a group with Portugal and the Netherlands, Ireland went unbeaten and finished second in the group. Roy Keane was amazing. Amazing. And his performances against the Netherlands and Portugal were incredible. And, and he was also Ireland's top goal scorer in, in the knockouts with four goals. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go for 94 Ireland over Italy. That's that's it. That's the one for me. And, and that World Cup, I adore. Like, uh, Baggio's performance against Bulgaria in the quarterfinals to drag Italy through was, was incredible. Um, right, I've got two more, and then we're done. And again, sorry this is late again today, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Owen Hurley 
What are your top three favorite World War Two movies? Ooh. Ooh. Saving Private Ryan. Definitely. Um, is that, that is World War Two, isn't it? It is World War Two. It is World War Two. Let me think. The Imitation Game. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Incredible. Guy wants to suggest The Pianist. Wouldn't be one of my top three, but definitely a great movie. Um... I'll tell you what I love is the Clint Eastwood 2 that he did. Um, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. I love those two films. Absolutely love them. Now, they're not the most popular, I don't think, with a lot of people. Um, I think they're brilliant. So I would say those two Saving Private Ryan. And what was the other one I said? Oh, yeah, the imitation game. Love the imitation game. But there's there's so many. There's so many. Gra- I mean, Schindler's List. But that's a tough day. If you're watching Schindler's List, that's a really tough day that you're setting yourself up for. Um, there, there are so many. It's the second best war in terms of movies after Vietnam. Um, right. Okay, last question is also from Owen. A question regarding summer business for Liverpool. I think Liverpool will stump up for one starter with another one or two coming in depending on sales. So around 120 to 130 million-ish. Would you rather... Oh yeah, so the owners would buy it, would pay for one and then one or two more would come based on sales. So he's given me... Six groups of players. I have to pick one. Um, Christopher Nkunku, Darwin Nunes, Arlene Chumeni, Rafinha, Jonathan David, Frankie de Jong, Rafinha, Chumeni, Bubakar Kamara, Vinicius Jr., Florian Wirtz, Calvin Phillips, Rafinha, Hossamauer, Wilfendidi, Rafinha, Darwin Nunes, Bubakar Kamara. I think it's the last one. Like, Nkunku would be incredible, as would Darwin, as would Chimeni. That that might be it. Oh, that it's it's either it's either Nkunku, Darwin, and Chimeni, or Rafinha, Darwin, and Kamara. I think it's it's one of those two for me. I like Jonathan David, I think he's very good, but I think Darwin is more of a guaranteed goal-getter. Frankie's exceptional, but the boost you get from Chiuameni and even from Kamara is to give you that cover for Fabinho. And Kunku and Rafinha is so close. I do prefer Rafinha. If I had to pick one, I'd go for him. But as much as I love Bubakar Kamara, Chiuameni, for me, swings it. I'll go... Nkunku, Darwin, Chuamena. But I will say my preferred three, if I was if it was me, would be Nkunku, Rafinha, and Chuamena. That's what I would do. 
if I had carte blanche, I'd be selling off players and finding that money. Like I'd let I'd sell Naby because of the injuries. I'd sell Ox. I'd let Milner leave. I'd bring in Rafinha and Chuamena as midfielders. Rafinha on the right. Chuamena can play all across. Can start on the left or be, you know, a backup to Thiago. But I think if those four are your first four midfielders, Rafinha, Chuamena, Fabinho and Thiago, that's incredible. Uh, Nkunku gives me the attacker that I want. So I've got, I just have him straight in as a replacement for Mane. Yeah, that that that's what I would do. I would go Nkunku, Rafinha, and Chuamena. But of the of the th- of the six options you've given me, I would go Nkunku, Darwin Nunes, Chuamena as option A. Rafinha, Darwin Nunes, Bubakar Kamara as option B. I don't think you could get them, but I I mean Vinicius, Florian Verts, and Calvin Phillips would be an amazing summer as well. Um, Rafinha, Auer, and Didi would be interesting, but I think if you're doing that, you're pushing Fabinho to centre back and you're selling Matip. Um, Auer is an interesting one. I'd like to see what he could do, but he's he definitely gone off the boil. Um, Rafinha, Jonathan, David, Frankie would, would be phenomenal. I mean, there's, there's just no denying it. it'd be an amazing window, but uh, of the six, I'd go in Kunku, Darwin, Chuamena, but my, my preference would be in Kunku, Rafinha, Chuamena. Um, I think that just solves more needs. And that's it then. That is me for today, folks. Another very long podcast, as I seem to be now in the habit of doing this week. Um, Apologies if they're too long, but you can listen in two parts. It's fine. Uh, Oh, I didn't do the gossip, so hang on, I'm not done yet. Uh, Bayern Munich could sell Robert Lewandowski in the summer if he does not renew his contract. Uh, Makes sense. Makes sense. They could go after Haaland. They could go for Vlahovic. They could go for Darwin Nunes. They could go for Isak. They could go for Jonathan David. A lot of good young strikers available this summer. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's representatives have told Manchester United that he will look to leave the club in the summer if they fail to qualify for next season's Champions League. Good. Let him leave. Let him leave. He, He doesn't bring you anything that you can't replace easily. Let him leave. Where's he going to go? Qatar? Who cares? Atletico Madrid will not allow Luis Suarez to leave in January. Everybody knew that already. Barcelona are in advanced talks with Andreas Christensen about a pre-contract. Makes sense. They could do with centre-back help. An unnamed Premier League team have matched Newcastle's offer for Diego Carlos. So I was thinking about this last night. I saw this rumour yesterday. I was thinking about this. So who do we think needs centre-backs? So... Manchester City don't. Liverpool don't. Chelsea could do with a centre-back, but I think if they're buying from Sevilla, it's probably Kunde. West Ham have been mentioned as wanting a centre-back. He wouldn't be the one I'd buy for them, but it wouldn't surprise me if it it was them. Tottenham could do with centre-backs, but I don't think he's ideal in a back three. Uh, So David Ornstein has said it is a London club. I will say it's either West Ham or Tottenham. And I think it's more likely to be West Ham. I think it's more likely to be West Ham. Arsenal don't need a centre-back because they've got Saliba to come back and they're happy with what they have. Um, 
I'll guess it's West Ham. Manchester United will let Jesse Lingard go if a club pays a 3.5 million. No, they won't. Nonsense. Uh, Lille president Oliver Olivier, excuse me, Olivier Latang, says the French club won't even open the door to discuss selling Sven Botman. That's fine because no one's knocking the door. They're ringing your phone. Tell them you won't answer the phone. Uh, Chelsea are interested in signing Gavi. I'd imagine every club in Europe is. Former Everton striker Wayne Rooney is the new frontrunner. He's not. Uh, West Ham are targeting Blackburn's Chilean striker Ben Brereton Diaz and Liverpool's Nat Phillips in the January transfer window. Brereton Diaz is a weird one, right? So I remember when he came through at Nottingham Forest, I remember thinking that he looks a player. He seems to have had a bit. Now, I could be wrong, but he seems bigger than he used to be. He seems to be taller than he was five years ago. I could be wrong. You watch him play. And he's really scruffy with his dribbling, with his finishing. But he's super effective. Now, I wouldn't buy him right now because I would just be a little bit concerned about whether this season is a bit of an outlier for him, whether he can replicate it. But, I mean, I, I won't shout down anyone who does buy him. I, he's having a hell of a season. He's developing into a very, very good all-round centre forward. And for West Ham, they could do with bringing someone in as a centre forward for the long term. No doubt. Garrett Southgate is considering a call-up for Adam Webster. Fair, fair. Definitely performing a lot better than the current crop you've got in the squad. One Premier League side and a number of championships uh, clubs are interested in 24-year-old English striker Kabongo Chiamanga, who has scored 21 goals in 22 appearances for National League side Chesterfield. Championship clubs would make sense. Premier League is a step up. It's too much of a step up. But if it's Norwich, who could go down, it would make sense. Uh, Arsenal have stepped up the pursuit of Arthur Mello. It seems to be dragging on a bit. Arsenal are prepared to make Dusan Vlavic one of the highest paid players in the world, but he remains unsure. He doesn't want to play for Arteta, is, is what I'm reading into it. Bayern Munich are prepared to challenge Manchester United to sign Dennis Zakaria. Bayern could do with it, probably a little bit of extra midfield depth. So, but, I mean, it will be a waste for him, but for them it would make, make sense. PSG are confident that Zinedine Zidane will be in charge next season, which would open the door for Pochettino to go to Manchester United, which is what we all think will happen. Uh, Burnley are no they're not no they're not Burnley are not monitoring developments over Chris Basham who wasn't good enough to play in the Premier League last season and has shown nothing this season to suggest he's good enough to do it now uh, Charlton, Ipswich, Oxford and Sunderland are all interested in Jermaine Defoe who's available on a free transfer after leaving Rangers uh, Charlton would be fun I'd like to see him go back to Charlton I have to say finish your career where you started it um, Juventus have grown frustrated with Aaron Ramsey after he turned that off for Steve. Because you gave him a stupid contract and he doesn't want to go somewhere that he's going to earn less money. Like, it's not rocket science, lads. Come on now. Uh, former France and Arsenal striker Thierry Henry is in the, in the running to become the next Bordeaux manager after stepping down as Montreal impact manager. So... Thierry Henry is not a good football manager. He just isn't. He was in charge of Monaco for 20 games. He won four of them. He was in charge of Montreal Impact for 29 games. He won nine of them. 
this is not a good manager. And he didn't step down at Montreal. He was told, you leave or we're sacking you. That's what that's what happened. Oh, he left to be closer to his children. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He was told, leave or you're getting sacked. Just like he got sacked by Monaco. Stop pretending that he's a good manager. He's not. Stoke are set to sign Aston Villa's 19-year-old English winger, Jaden Philogen Bidas, on loan for the end of the season. Yeah, fair play, fair play. Looks talented from the bits I've seen. And uh, lastly, AC Milan are interested in signing Jaffa Tanganga on loan, but the Premier League sign side would prefer to sell him. I don't think they want to sell him. I think if they are letting him go, it will be on loan. Look, Milan, it worked for Tamori. It worked out real well with Tamori. So why not? Why not try that again? See if it can work. Tanganga's very talented. Uh, he's had a bit of a rough time at Spurs. He's got a lot to learn. Um, he's still quite rash. His positional sense a bit, you know, he's he's a bit overexcited. He's, he's a bit overexcited as a defender. But um, if they're willing to sell him and Milan have the money, why not? Take a chance. It worked really, really well the last time. Maybe he's your right back. He might be better suited as a right back in a four than a centre back in a four. You know, he's only six foot. He's very good defensively when the ball's in front of him because he's aggressive, he's quick, he's got good reactions. But it's the positional side, the more mental side of the game that he needs work on. But he's only 22. You put him at right back next to Tamori, that could be something that works for Milan for a long time. Really could be something that works for a long time. They've got Theo Hernandez at left back. So that's that's locked down. They still need one centre-back because Kiar is, is past his best. and was. I'm not allowed to disparage Simon Kiar because I made a promise last summer that I wouldn't. But, you know, his, his, let's just say his peak wasn't elite. And um, they could probably do it with bringing in someone to replace him. And that's it. We will leave it there for today, folks. Thank you, as always. Um, sorry about the long pause. But, you know, I can't. I can't control how long I talk for. This is maybe why people say I need a co-host. I will see you all tomorrow for a nice short pod with Guy. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.